Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co- my co-host, MLB veteran, coach, and scout, Jim Rooney. And we're here with Toe the Rubber, player development for all ages, episode 225 on the network. And want to first welcome Jim back to his show, uh, star of the show here. Jim, welcome back. Thank you, Dave. Yeah. I know you're in the middle of camps this week, and I want you to talk a little bit about that. But uh, before we get to that, just thank our subscribers here. Over 20,000. And we tapped into another network, which we found out that we are almost doubled in terms of subscribers now. So we're, we've been ad-free for you guys for a year that we've been going on. We want to take care of our audience. Uh, but we're now into another phase of our, our model here. And it looks like we're going to be getting some attention from potential sponsors. So uh, we appreciate you guys. We run the show for our audience and our audience only. Uh, we're allowed to do this because of you guys. And we'll continue to give you great content like we do here every week on Toe the Rubber. Um, but Get us on all the same networks you've done before. Keep following that same procedure. Rate and review. The rate and review helps us. And we have loyal followers in 72 countries, so we appreciate you guys. But uh, with that, Jim, welcome back to the show. I know you got a, a story that will lead into our topic today with rhythm and timing, but uh, how's the camp going? I know you got a little bit of weather early. you got a nice baseball camp going on. How many kids? What's the age groups? Um, you know, what, what's happening at that camp? Yeah, so this is the second week of uh, camp. I do uh... – one week in June, one week in July, and one week in August. Uh, it's a traditional summer camp as far as for baseball. But I kind of um, work it towards the younger introductory type kids. So currently uh, at this week's camp, I have 30 campers. A majority of them are six, seven, eight, and nine years old. Um, we split up into two big groups where the six and seven and eight-year-olds are learning with a couple of my uh, assistants and then the um, 10, 11, 12 year olds are working with me as a group and individually. Um, we kind of work on a specific fundamental in the morning, whether it be uh, direction, balance and matching of the throwing process, whether it be uh, my phrase step back smack for the rhythm and timing used in hitting. <clears throat> and then after the break, we, um, we have two games going on and we play on, uh, two smaller fields. So there's plenty of home runs and plenty of excitement. And we monitor, sometimes we play, uh, different rules like you would consider in a stick ball game or a wiffle ball game as far as, uh, no hitting the right field, or if you hit a target, you get bonus points just to get them involved in the process and uh, and that they have fun and learn the fundamentals of the game. Yeah. Those so, are four we learned how to hit the other way was uh, righty and lefty. We would play those same stick ball games, and sometimes we would play you can only go oppo on the ball. So those are great. I think those are great old school teaching methods for those kids. Yes, exactly. I, I remember the day where you you know me being from New York and you'd hit the Yankee lineup. So when Mickey Rivers was up, you batted lefty. When Willie Randolph was up, you had to bat righty. You had to bat similar to his stance, similar to his style, and you won't go right through the order. So something that um, when you see kids nowadays and if you leave them alone to have their fun and to enjoy it and not have everything structured and monitored, they kind of get back to some of that ways, which is very important, like we discussed last episode. It's extremely important for kids to learn how they do things, how their body functions, their body type, and all the things that they need to focus on before they start getting into too structured of an environment. 
yeah, they lose their way. We're so over-involved as adults nowadays that these kids are, I would say, so over-coached and so under-taught. Um, and the self-teaching aspect of the game is gone um, at all levels. So I'm glad you're doing that. It's, it's refreshing to hear. I think we talked before. We do that at least one day a week where we have uh, kind of like the old school days where there's no parents allowed, no coaches allowed, and the, and the kids have to organize, monitor, decide what's important um, to there. And we actually started running our games that way in basketball, where right? we tell the kids, and we're going to do it in baseball this week as well. we got another big tournament. I'm not going to joystick you. Don't look to me unless you need help. If you look over, I know you need help, and I'll provide you with my thought. But I want you to think. I want you to make mistakes. If it costs us a game, we're going to learn from it. It's not about my record. My record's my record. I'm retired. So I don't need any more wins or losses to validate my ego. So I'm glad you're doing it. We're two kindred spirits. Hopefully we can bring some more people along with that mentality on developing kids. You've got a story. I know we're going to talk rhythm and timing today, um, but you had something, you know, as you were watching baseball this week, that was a, a story around that topic that you thought would be great, a great visual for our audio audience here. Yes. It's, I would say it's the anti rhythm and timing. Um, so I'm, I'm listening to uh, a Yankee game, Yankees versus the Cubs the other night. And, uh, before the situation arose, the Yankees had a double play possibility of probably in the fifth or sixth inning, uh, and uh, and they blew it. They were unable to convert the double play, and this led to two runs, and the Cubs tied it up 4-4. But even before the start of that inning, um, Domingo Herman, I believe, had thrown six innings of one-hit ball with only 74 pitches, there's a leadoff walk, and he's immediately out of the game. So we go to the uh, the typical nowadays bullpen game where one guy's going to come in and pitch the the, uh, the seventh, and then one guy the eighth, and one guy the ninth. And sometimes nowadays it goes that there's five relievers used in a game. And one thought process with that is now you're looking for five guys to do well instead of if you left Herman in the game. Uh, maybe you're only looking for three guys to have a good day. So they uh, bring in Marinacci, who's a you know very good pitcher, a right-hander. He's got great stuff, but you can see in his background when you've watched him that there's times that he just simply loses the strike zone, and he starts off the inning and he uh, pretty hard hit line drive to center field early on a count on a fastball and the next two batters, believe it or not, he walks them on nine pitches. And now you're like, Oh, so we can see this isn't headed in the right direction. So we change pitchers. Well, that didn't work. So we bring in another guy and the other guy, Clay Holmes comes in and he's usually reliable, but every now and then he's also a little bit inconsistent, heavy sink with the fastball. And what does he do? He throws a wild pitch. Next thing you know, the Cubs are up, and then the inning gets away from them. The number one thing when you grew up playing baseball, if you were a relief pitcher, is that you're going to come into the game, and you're going to throw strikes, and you're going to execute your pitches. But in this world nowadays, it's about let's just go out there, throw as hard as we can, and see what happens. And some days we have good days, and some days we have bad days. And it's like uh, – it's kind of like spinning the roulette wheel if you're the manager of that game, but that's what you see. And next thing you know, you're you're watching three or four relievers coming into the game, and basically they're out there attempting to throw as hard as they can. 
they're trying to throw their, you know, their greatest pitch ever on the next pitch. And nothing really is about rhythm, timing, and execution. Nothing is about, you know, repeating our release point in order to throw strikes. It's more, let's go to a strict power game. And um, if it's good for that day, it's good. If it's not good, well, you know, we'll get them next time. But that's where you see so many uh, games falling apart on the major league level nowadays. Yeah. There's nothing natural about trying to throw as hard as you can even one time. I guess if you got to ratchet it up and, you know, games on the line, we – you know, got to blow on by somebody, but I even watch these kids online. Uh, you know, there was one the other day, there's like six guys standing around with no shirt on. They're probably like 15, 16 years old. They all should have had shirts on. And one guy's doing some weird, he looks like he's in a stretch and he starts moving his lead foot back, 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 back to the point where it's almost next to his foot. That's on the rubber. And he's in a, you know, he's in a stretch position, hauls back and just whips it as, I mean, as hard as he could, it, it hurt my body watching him. And then he comes back chest bumping all the other guys. He must have hit some uh, velocity record or something on it. But it's, it's, there's nothing natural about that. There's nothing that says that's a pitcher right there to me. And I guess that's what we're seeing all the way up the line now. Yes, yes. I, I've, I've seen something similar to that where um, guy gets on the mound. He's thrown from the stretch. There's at least 50 or 60 people there all standing watching him. There's a uh, a catcher there. He winds up. It's nothing but pure power, explosiveness. Doesn't get through the front side. Doesn't get anything done that we're going to speak of today. Lights up the gun, gun at 99 miles an hour. Everybody's congratulating, jumping up and down, cheering. The horns are going off. The whole thing, quite an accomplishment. But when you look back, he missed the catcher by almost seven feet. Yeah. So if a guy like Aaron judge was up, the ball would have been three feet over and behind his head. So I can understand there might be a mini accomplishment in there and what they were trying to achieve. But, uh, I see very little carryover to that in, into the game and the ability to get people out. Yeah. And the unfortunate part about it, we're going to get into it today, is that the instruction of this type of pitching is almost prevalent, as at least as we're watching on social media. Hopefully that's all that, that's not all that's going on because we uh, hear chronicles of how you're teaching the game. And we can hope to find more people that'll follow what you're doing as opposed to watching what's getting clicks on, on YouTube and Twitter and all the other mediums that cloud our brains. But I've got one, one selfish question I'm going to ask. You know I do that every episode, probably more than once, but... So as I'm watching windups now, and we talked about this, these, and there's probably a hundred thousand of these guys on YouTube doing it, but everybody seems to be cookie cutter with their windup now. It's a little sidestep or people throwing from the stretch, whatever happens to the hands over the head. And again, you're talking to a hitter here. So pardon my ignorance with the questions, but as a hitter, the more homogeneous the pitchers are, the better chance I have of getting timing. I don't care how many pitchers you throw out there, five, six, seven. But you're taught not to hit to the windup. But again, your eye is, you know, it sees what it sees. What happened to that? The over the head, you know, guys over the head, the different deliveries that are going on nowadays, or that should be going on, but everything seems to be cookie cutter. Right. I, the number one reason I feel is that um, because we're just teaching power, we're not teaching the motor skill development and the proper balance and rhythm and timing. So when a pitcher would go, let's say overhead in his delivery, the current 
instructors and coaches are looking and they're trying to eliminate anything that could go wrong in the delivery. So they're trying to simplify things down so that they have a specific result. Um, it's the same reasoning used by why nowadays do the radar guns measure the ball out of the pitcher's hand because they're eliminating all the environmental factors yeah. in order for them to say, well, here's the benchmarks in here. And according to pure science, that's proper because we want to eliminate all the external factors that we have no control over. So the same mindset is being brought into the delivery where instead of doing things that would, um, would amplify rhythm, timing, looseness, um, non-power type activities, we're saying, well, wait a second, when, you know, there's too many things that could go wrong when you try to do that in your delivery. So we're just going to eliminate it. Um, I, you know, I mean, I've seen big league pitching coaches recently eliminate some of the leg kick, at least knee to the belt, belt height, because they saw an over rotation of the hips. Well, instead of correcting the problem, we put a bandaid on it and we just eliminate the leg kick. And uh, it's almost like an abbreviated slide step, every, especially for a, a pitcher every time he comes into the game. Um, and that happens a lot nowadays. You, you don't see the – in defense of, of people in pro ball nowadays, you, you don't see a lot of athletes with real good body control um, and proper motor skill development and the ability to, to adapt and adjust. So they attempt to eliminate that out of the equation – and this is where I think that we get more of the robotic type of um, of pitching deliveries or pitching actions. Uh, there's a story that relates to that. And back in the late, oh, I would say the early 70s, a Sports Illustrated writer went to spring training, Orioles spring training, and each day he attempted to hit against one of the Orioles starters. And I believe at the time it was Dave McNally, Mike Cuellar, um, another guy and uh, Jim Palmer. Uh, I don't believe it was Pat Dobson, but it was another right-hander. And what he said, the insanity was that each of them were different. So he could understand after trying to do that five days in a row, how you could go in and play a four-game series against the Baltimore Orioles, and you could be a hitter that's on fire, and then all of a sudden be definitely pushed into a slump because you're trying to time up three different pitchers, three different deliveries, three different arm actions, uh, different uh, pitch combinations, different locations, different ways about going at it. And he goes, none, not one pitcher that he faced was similar to the other one. And um, so that was an article that presented that type of viewpoint. And then there was another one where I was in rookie ball with the Orioles and we would play the Yankees. And I knew who the pitching coordinator for the Yankees was. He was a very successful college pitching coach also. But yet every single Yankee pitcher was 6'3", 210, 6'4", 2'15", right-handed, and very robotic. And every single one of them looked the same. Our team never had any problem. And back then, 
even the Major League Oriole Club never had really any problem with the Yankees because things were very robotic and methodical. And you might see two pitchers or three pitchers on consecutive days that threw very similar. And it was very, very easy for hitters to time that up. Um, and I think that's what leads into our topic today about rhythm and timing. Um, the things we spoke about uh, last week was hip mobility. So we understand to, to lead into proper rhythm and timing, we have three things that are of utmost importance. That's our hip mobility, which provides our foundation, our main foundation on our delivery, our spinal stability, which can only occur when we have proper hip mobility. And then the third is scapular stability, which becomes the foundation for the uh, arm action. And that can only occur if we have spinal stability. So they one, one of them leads into another. And because of that, the rhythm and timing that we should be using, we spoke briefly last week about um, direction, balance, and matching as far as not only drills, but kind of trigger phrases, trigger uh, phrases for the pitching delivery. But the rhythm and timing off of that now, and you can go very simple into the knee up, ball out. That's been used in the past. Front foot hits, arms in throwing position. These are kind of standard type things. But what we're looking to accomplish is that we don't want to be going two directions at the same time. We don't want our hips to be leaving the rubber and our upper body starting to rotate and our hand is still going back into the throwing position. We want to be in throwing position where the arm at the uh, elbow is at shoulder height and the hand is in a perfect world above the elbow. Um, if it's slightly outside the elbow, it still functions. And the reason why we want that is because the way our shoulder is put together, when you go into external rotation or internal rotation, it flows when you're in that proper position. But the first thing uh, that happens when the elbow moves either lower than the shoulder or higher than the shoulder or in front of the shoulder, so the pitcher is leading with the elbow, is it limits external rotation. So the hand will never drop into external rotation. There's a problem with that, especially for young pitchers. Because when you're talking about 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old kids, their natural physical makeup is that they're much stronger in the pushing muscles, so think of the front side of the body, than they are in the pulling muscles, the back side of the body or the posterior. As a result, external rotation is a pulling type activity. Internal rotation is a pushing activity. So they're naturally to start much stronger in internal rotation than they are external rotation. As a result, the internal rotators become overworked in the throwing process, especially for a young pitcher, young thrower. And in a fatigued state, they shorten, they get tighter. This now li limits external rotation. So even if you're a 10-year-old throwing a baseball and you're completely healthy and you have a pretty good arm action where your elbow's up to your shoulder and you're leading with your hand, you're still going to be limiting external rotation. It's, it's part of the maturation process of all throwers. Um, if you now take that elbow and put it in front of the shoulder, leading with the elbow, or above the shoulder or below the shoulder, 
you compound the limit, the natural limitations of external rotation, right? And we all know that true speed of the baseball comes from your external rotation, how the hand's able to lay back into external rotation as the body's accelerating forward. Um, I used the analogy uh, last week of the car pulling on the highway. Nice entrance ramp on the highway of about 500, you know, 500 feet or 500 yards, let's say 500 yards. And it's a smooth acceleration up to up to 70 degrees. So you can merge with the traffic on the highway. If all of a sudden the uh, on-ramp was only 500 feet instead of 500 yards, we're going to be really taxing that engine to rev up. And we're probably not going to be 70 when we get to the, uh, into the right lane attempting to merge. So you can think of external rotation and that arm action is that we're looking for uh, a range of motion that while still controllable will allow us to have a smooth acceleration instead of a forced revving of our internal engine, our body. Now, if I'm, if I'm going ahead too, too far, pull me back here, but as, as you're, you're describing it perfectly and I know we're a audio show, but I think you're giving a great visual for the, the audience as you're getting into this um, time to throw, how do things like your drive line and your front side weigh into what you're describing? Well, once we once we understand where our proper throwing position are in the position of the elbow and the rhythm and timing of we want to go back in order to go forward, all right, we don't want to go two directions at the same time. You start to see that the front side, your front side direction if we initially talk about the upper body, it's for direction. The problem with young pitchers, young throwers, is as we've discussed, they're giving a, a ball the same weight, same size as big league guys. They're not strong enough yet. They don't have the proper range of motion because of where they are in their own maturation process. So we attempt to create force on the front side. So you see pulling with the front side, flying open with the front side, driving that elbow, all these type of things. This gets us completely out of whack and for the most part takes us right off our driveline. Um, sometimes when I discuss driveline, in order to have that young player have somewhat of a, a visual or an understanding, is we do want to stay on that driveline. So if you, if you were going to, say, draw a line from the rubber straight down to the catcher's glove, and we call that the drive line, we want to stay on that line. But we understand that throwing a ball, there's three rotational forces. So those rotational forces are going to rotate around that line. The key is to not get too far off and have those three rotational forces, hip turn, shoulder turn, arm path. If they work together, they can stay on that line. If they're not working together, we're getting pulled in multiple directions off that line. So I'd use the analogy um, for anybody outside of a big city, you can think of a bus, but I always use a train, a subway train or a train on the tracks. If you started running to get onto the train, get through the, the door of the train, while the train was pulling out of the station, you'd miss, right? Because of the acceleration of the train. So when you, in New York City especially, 
you go down the subway stairs and you see the subway pulling out, you start you start running up in an arc around a door ahead of the door that you're going in. And then as the second door passes, boom, you jump on the drive line. You're there. Um, so the importance of these, these arcs are still supposed to work. We're not trying to turn the pitching mechanic into a linear operation. There's the three arcs and the rotation is to occur along that drive line. So when we talk about the first thing, direction, direction of your feet, your hips and your shoulder match up to that drive line, right? So now that drive line or the median of your body acts as the fulcrum point to those three rotational forces. And as we stated at the start of today, hip mobility creates the foundation with the ground. Spinal stability um, um, allows for scapular stability, which is the foundation for the arm. So you have two platforms, your hips into the ground and your shoulder blade, your scapula, in which those rotational forces are, you know, go around. So that's a little bit complex, but the key to that is that the front side in the upper body, your front shoulder cannot be connected to your front hip. Um, nowadays, that's that's, open, right? right. Nowadays that's called hip separation, All right? Hip separation as far as to be something to be focused on usually is uh, depending on the maturation of the individual, but usually around when that pitcher becomes a teenager, because we need, we need, we need certain growth plates and maturation of muscles and tendons and ligaments to have occurred before we start placing too much emphasis on resistance work for rotational forces. So if a guy's riding his bike, throwing the baseball, playing different positions, playing basketball, running around, playing football, swimming, doing things that kids do, they're going to get, enough natural hip shoulder separation that doesn't have to be worked on. Um, now, as far as for the lower half, here's where we, we end up getting into a lot of problems with rhythm and timing of the lower half, the lower body, the front side. So your land leg has to be stable. I use the gymnastic term term. Um, you have to stick the landing. For every individual, that landing is going to be different. The knee, some knees are at 90 degrees flexion. Some knees are 45. Some knees are almost straight. Doesn't really, for me, it doesn't really matter. But it has to remain stable. What you see in a lot of modern day throwers is that they get out to that land leg with very little flexion. And then... As they accelerate forward, they straighten that leg, and that leg becomes a fulcrum where they, the hips many, many times then are rotating laterally around. So now, when you look at their body type and you look at the way they've been trained, they're all pretty big and strong in their upper body and they have phenomenal arm strength. So the fact that the hip turn isn't really in their mechanic, it kind of flies off, but the modern day coach thinks that the straightening of that leg and that pole vault action is the final addition to the velocity. And you see guys that 
are thrown very, very hard because of it, but with very, very little command. Um, think of a uh, think of a hammer thrower in uh, in the Olympics. They have that big shot put at the end of a chain. Chain has a handle, and they're spinning around uh, horizontal to the ground. Right? They're spinning, spinning. They fast enough, fast enough, fast enough, fast enough, and in rhythm and timing, they let the, they let the thing go, and they try to throw it straight. Well. When you look at that field that the shot putter, the hammer, the discus is thrown, it's kind of like a baseball field. There's an angle out there, right? There's an, uh, I don't know the specific degrees in this angle, but you have to throw it within the two white lines in order for the throw to uh, qualify. Well, when you're throwing a baseball, you have to throw the ball over a 17 inch wide plate, which is much different. So if you were going to put things into your delivery that your rotational aspect of your hips and your shoulder were completely lateral or horizontal to the ground, there's a lot of hit and miss in there. You're going to have to timing up absolutely perfect your release point, and it becomes hit or miss in order to hit a 17-inch plate. Whereas if you just had to throw the ball in between the white lines, Wow, you could generate as much force as possible, just like a hammer thrower or discus thrower, and keep it between the white lines. But the sad thing is, is when you're a pitcher, you're supposed to keep the thing, the ball, within a 17-inch plate. Yeah. So I that's – go ahead. I was going to say I got a lower half question for you. And, again, this is from a hitter's perspective. As a hitter, taught to have a slow, controlled lower half. Um is it the same with pitchers? Because now when I'm watching pitchers throw, they got more of that. Again, it could be because they're chasing velocity. It looks like more of a, a jerking action with their lower half as opposed to slow and controlled. Correct. Correct. And your lower body instability and the stability of the front side, the rhythm and timing is that you're not supposed to be quick to your front. It's in a perfect world, when the guy has outstanding lower body control, it's almost like a stride of a hitter. He picks the knee up. What most people don't realize is that a majority of pitchers, when their knee goes up in their delivery and they're at their quote-unquote balance point, um, I say that because to me balance point isn't necessarily – a term that I use or anything of importance. It's more of a flow of energy down the slope, not a stop, go type of uh, type of thing. But when that front foot goes out, they still have to be loaded on the backside. And a majority of people, the knee goes up and the foot goes up and then it goes down and they go forward. I've seen very few pitchers that when the knee and foot goes up and from the highest position, they go to the plate. It's almost unnatural. So when you think it's up, down, go, and some semblance of that, it's up, down, go, and then that front side is controlled, and you're placing that foot down. After that foot's down, then it's gangbusters. Just go. You know, produce force and acceleration and get out front and do your thing. Once 
you've established lower body front side stability because you have to be able to stick the landing and hold it. That front foot, that front leg, front knee, front hip becomes the stabilizing force for that rotation and all that acceleration out front. So these guys that we're watching, we talked about them earlier. I don't want to give them too much uh, airtime, but as you're describing, you know, the drive line and the front side, doing that stuff properly will naturally create force is what you're saying. Where these guys, it seems like they're doing it the opposite. They're trying to create force with some uh, spastic um, movements that aren't related to direction and and uh, rhythm and timing, but is, am I saying that right? Your, your drive line and your front side will ultimately help you increase force. You can't do that without it. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, a lot of times, especially for modern day relievers, what I say is th- they've created a, a false velocity. Um, because one, a majority of them, if they pitch like that over a two or three year period and they make 50 appearances, they're not going to be throwing 97, 98 after that three or four year period. And, and you see it. And the reason that happens nowadays, I believe, is that um, we've entered into a phase that everybody's replaceable. Everybody's in, interchangeable. Um, not only do you see that with uh, all of a sudden a team like the Yankees, they don't have any outfielders. Now, part of it is is injuries but the other part is that everybody's a utility player we've placed so much importance on everybody being able to play multiple positions so that they're interchangeable well that works for pitchers too especially bullpen guys um if a major league general manager gets three to four years of quality work out of reliever oh they're in heaven and if they got to replace them and you see a lot of this when uh, with the invention of the the terminology war wins above replacement. So if I stack AAA with a lot of guys that uh, are on par to some of the other guys in the back end of my bullpen, well, if one of those guys who are trying to max effort, throw the ball as hard as possible, every pitch goes down with an injury, I just replace them with someone else. Um, now, the thought process with their, if they have a dominant closer, is a little bit different. If they have a dominant setup guy, a little different. But even those two guys are starting to fall into the uh, the realm of the starting pitcher where we're trying to de-emphasize their, va- their value. Uh, modern analytics will tell you that, uh, you know, we can go, how many teams have tried a closer by committee? Now they say that, and then they explain to you the reasons, the analytical reasons why, but Really, it's because they couldn't develop guys that were good enough to fulfill those roles. So they say, you know, we're either not going to spend money or we're very poor at developing. Well, we can't say that to the public. So we say closer by committee or bullpen by committee or how many times do we have a uh, an opener or a bullpen by committee game? And then two or three guys are shipped to AAA and two or three guys come up to replace them for a little bit. And then they're part of the bullpen by committee. Um, the other part is that in that major league game, one of the things I want to really be adamant about is that if, you, if you're a pretty good pitcher 
let's say relief pitcher over a three to four year process, you've made a lot of money. Okay. You've made, you've made enough money, you know, a couple of million dollars. I mean, the minimum wage nowadays is what, five, 600,000, whatever. But, um, you put a couple of million in the bank and you end up having an injury and you can't pitch anymore. Yeah. You might have to tone your lifestyle down a little bit, but you still have three, $4 million in the bank. All right. Um, when you're 12 years old and you're attempting to uh, pitch a game or 14 or 15 or, or you're pitching for your high school and you take that mentality, well, in three or four years, if you can't throw anymore, you don't have three or four million dollars in the bank. Um, so that's the thing. Even when we talked about age related uh, uh, training protocols, a 12 year old. A 12-year-old Roger Clements didn't train like a 21-year-old Roger Clements that didn't train like a 42-year-old Roger Clements. It's completely different. And that's the, that's the mistake that's made currently of all the people that, uh, that, in my mind, are chasing velocity. Yes, there are going to be a few that's going to chase that velocity, and they're going to get a lot of money in the bank. But for the rest of the baseball community, that's an unattainable goal. So it's very difficult to try to learn and train in that type of method, because if you're not healthy, you're not getting anything. Um, so that's the key with um, getting back to the lower body stability. Once we have stability of the front side, now we can start um, learning to create more force through the backside, through the back hip. Um, I like to use the, the uh, term, your front side's for direction. It merely gets out of the way when your backside comes through. And this eliminates, especially in young guys, that, that, that whole process of pulling with the front side, trying to create force with the front side, trying to jump, jump out to the front hit foot, uh, starting the upper body rotation before the front foot uh, is that foot plant. Um, these are just some some basic things to go, you know, with that. Um, now, question yeah. for you: with, I, I I love your style of teaching because it's it reminds me of a custom motto. You got uh, you 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 uncover and discover, and these these seems like the prevalent way is to cookie cutter guys. And as you're describing this method of pitching, it's more the coordination of the three rotations. Um, which gets you to the point of force where it seems like everybody else is working backwards. They're trying to get force. And then, as you said, put band-aids on certain things to justify the force that they're applying to that, that little baseball right there. But it's, it's more the coordination of it and the sequencing of it, I guess is the, the, the two things, coordination and sequencing of the three rotations. It seems like. Yes. You got your sequencing hips, shoulders, hand, um, and, and as we've discussed in the past, when, when we add up the three rotational forces and they work together, we can throw the ball. It, it doesn't even feel like we're using our arm and the ball explodes, you know, at the plate. Um, I call that, I, I joke with my guys, my clients, and I, I call that when we reach our pitching epiphany, when all of a sudden you cut one loose and you surprise yourself and you're like, wow, I didn't, didn't even feel like I threw that ball. Um, you, you know, you can equate that to uh, 
and I'd love one day to have this conversation with, with uh, Dr. Kurdix. But um, years ago, they always talked about being in the mental zone, being yeah. in, the, in the, you know, and, and it was a, it was a physical adaptation. They saw it and they studied it in ultra marathoners where all of a sudden their mind just steps aside and it's like one foot in front of the other and time stands still and it just flows. Now, when you're a young player and you learn how your body works and how you play the game and the fun that you're having, you will get into that mental zone by accident far more times than the person that's continually within a structured environment. I relate that when I coached in Venezuela uh, in winter ball for two seasons, that you would see the Latin player and they're just, they're playing and having fun and there's no instruction. They're just, you know, they're playing. They don't even have a ball. Sometimes I saw them with, you know, the, the, the doll of their, the head of the doll of their sister's doll or whatever, or, or a taped up ball or, or, you know, like when we were younger, you didn't have a baseball, the cover fell off, whoever you taped it up with electrical tape, you kept playing, but they're swinging, they're hitting anything. They're out there playing. There's no coaches. There's no structure. And I equate that to that ultra marathon runner by chance. It happens. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's like the basketball player that, you know, at the buzzer, all of a sudden he goes up and he jumps maybe six to 10 inches higher than he's ever jumped. And he's above the rim and he slams it down and his team wins the game. He didn't think about it. It was a reaction. It happened. He was in the flow of the game. So, I mean, that's another episode that we would possibly have Dr. Kurt on just to speak about, you know, that athletic zone and the whole thing. But those situations happen because you're in the flow of what you're doing and the rhythm of timing of what you're doing. If it's a thought process or if it's a brute strength thing, it's not going to happen from my experience. Um, that's why the, when I call rhythm and timing, the flow of those rotational forces, you know, the snowball going down the hill, the, the gradual acceleration instead of overtaxing the engine, all those things are about rhythm and timing and flow. And a bonus of those type of things is that you'll find yourself in the mental zone more often than not. Uh, even there's been a lot of research done that physical, it's a physical state of being that um, actually can be replicated through training. And I will guarantee you that none of the training in order to replicate being in that mental zone where the mind step aside and the body does what it's trained has anything to do with uh, grunting and groaning and trying as hard as you can and just, you know, what you see in baseball nowadays. It's, the, um, it's ironic. It's the opposite. It's, it's your, you're, you're actually trying less when you're in that zone. I, I, I run ultra marathons. So I, we hit, you hit a spot with me when you said that. And of course, you know, the basketball background too. So um, I, yeah, I think Dr. Rick said it'd be fun to get him on and talk about that zone because often talked about, but you know, it's, and it's something we strive for. But it's, you know, it's those rare moments and the idea is to get into that zone as much as possible. And today's training methods are the antithesis of getting in the zone. They, they will not get you there, as you pointed out. What, do you have a specific training method or training program that you wanted to share with the audience today? Or? Yes. I mean, for me, everything needs to be adapted to each individual. 
in each individual case. But there's a couple of things that are pointers for us to uh, focus on in order to try to accomplish. The first thing is we have to have the ability to throw the ball out front, meaning the hand throws the ball in front of the body, not even to the body or behind the body. You see a lot of young kids trying to create force with the front side, and all of a sudden they look like javelin throwers. All the effort starts way in the back. Okay, that's a big negative. So there's a couple of drills that we do to just get the player to feel what it's like to throw the ball out front. Um, extension out front, release out front, consistency or release point out front. And it's a simple warm-up where you would stand – don't have to be two throwing partners, right? They don't have to be far apart. They stand um, parallel to each other, okay? Um, feet shoulder width apart. And they just raise their elbow up to their shoulder, drop into external rotation, and flip the ball forward. And all the action then becomes the front. After we get that going and we're starting to learn the wrist action, we're starting to learn, we're holding the ball with four seams, we're watching the rotation of the ball, we're getting comfortable. We then add that we twist our front shoulder to the target. So now we're working on a sneaky kind of way to add hip shoulder separation into the equation, but we're working on front shoulder to the target. Feet are still in your squat position, you'd say, shoulder width apart. You're rotating, you're reaching straight back, palm down, and as you rotate forward, we get back to throwing the ball out front. I use a term called, uh, I say, paintbrush, paintbrush straight down the wall. Anybody, uh, any dad out there or, or young guys out there who've had the pleasure of painting a house with their dad, I mean, if the strokes weren't up and down, the dad would be... Uh, pretty adamant about the you know straighten yourself out i don't want all these diagonals and all these slashes all over the wall the paint goes on up and down up and down so it's the same as throwing the ball out front so we can equate that as the hand accelerates out front it's paintbrush paintbrush right through the ball um from there we go into the uh direction drill where now we're facing uh the direction feet hips shoulders in the in the direction of the target we do a little what i call a rocking chair little rhythm to the front big rhythm to the back arm and throne position accelerate forward center of gravity your your navel your belly button past your front hip and these are these are just little throwing drills that get you in the position of where you're going to be when you have good rhythm and timing on the mount the last one we put together balance and matching you're still in that direction, position, feet, hips, and shoulders towards the target. You raise both elbows, front and back, glove, glove arm, throwing arm. You raise both elbows up to the shoulder. Do a little toe tap to load two or three times, and then you accelerate forward. Again, center of gravity past your front hip. Especially with that last drill, you work totally on having the player understand that we're going to do the same exact thing off the mound 
And everything we do before the front foot hits, the foot plant, is in preparation to get into that balance and matching drill that we just did. And they start to then get a feel of how things are supposed to carry over and not necessarily somebody standing behind them on the mound and saying to them, do this, do that, do this, do that. And then they start thinking too much and the feeling part breaks down and the whole thing. So those, those are the rhythm and timing aspects of some throwing drills and things to attempt to accomplish. Now, remember, the off-the-field work is just as important because we have to ensure we have proper hip mobility. So there's the hip mobility exercises. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of them online. What I call hinge work. Your split squats, your regular squats, teaching that hip to hinge. There's your scapula stability, tubing exercises, wrist weight exercises. Once again, you could just Google them online. Uh, The Jaeger program with the tubing exercises, even the uh, driveline program with the wrist weights are fine in order to accomplish that. We then also can walk into stabilizing that front leg. How do we stick the landing? Sometimes we can do simple balance work. You stick the landing on the front side and you reach out as if you were at your release point and you raise your back leg and you balance. Eventually we add resistance to the throwing hand and this mimics the uh, eccentric contraction of the external rotators, which is the initial part of slowing the arm down correctly. Uh, We can move into one-legged deadlifts. A lot of the work, I, as I've said before, is done with kettlebells. So we're using the kettlebells um, to create the stability that we talk about on that front side. You can use the kettlebells in basic kettlebell work, farmer's walks, um, uh, rack position stabilization, where you just hold the kettlebell in front, whether you're doing an exercise or not, works on setting the scapulas Skin down and back, retraction and depression, down and back on the scapulas. Don't let your shoulders hang out and party with your ears. That's where we become trap dominant, which tends to cause shoulder impingement syndrome because the scapula is now floating and it drives the supraspinatus tendon and the bicep tendon into your acromion process, which is part of your shoulder uh, collarbone. Uh, these are some things to you know just keep in mind and. It's setting us up. All this stuff that we spoke of today is setting us up to have the ability to get our hand out front to throw the baseball where all the good things happen. Um, Can this be used for a position player as well, most of the stuff you're talking about? Yes. One of the things um, that I used to see even with big leaguers is they'd warm up. Let's say a couple of infielders are warming up. And uh, they become stiff on their front side. They stick the front leg in like a post and they rotate laterally around it because they don't really have many throws of of great distance. I've seen middle infielders practice that way over a number of years. And then you see them go out to take a relay throw and you start to wonder, they start to wonder why all of a sudden do I have don't have to carry on the ball and everything I throw seems to fade on me. Well, because they've grown so accustomed to not getting over the front side 
So these drills are perfect like for them. all position players. So um, you, let's say I had I, we've got practice tomorrow morning, and we were gonna we have a routine we do when we throw. But how would how would you apply this to let's say a group of 10, 10 boys warming up for a traditional practice? Because I would think this should be done. I mean, this has got to be done daily, uh, constant maintenance yes. on this type of stuff. Yes. Um, it's not a once a week, twice a week. It's every day. It's that important. It's, you know, it's throwing the baseball. The team that doesn't make their partners reach, whether it's pitcher, catcher, or a relay throw or short to first, those are the teams that are going to have a best shot of success, regardless of sport. I mean, it's it's valuing the ball, basically. So how would you warm up that team? What would be take these drills and incorporate it into like a, you know, how you do a warm up with, with them? Okay, well. The main thing to remember is we throw the baseball with our body. That's the number one goal of everybody on the field. Two, we throw the ball, baseball out front. All the work's down, done out front. That's number two. So initially, just like warm up for anything that you've done, any type of dynamic warm up. So you'll see the guys with dynamic warm ups where they're rotating their hips, they're doing you know, walking lunges, different things to incorporate the hip mobility and getting the hips working. Um, any of the arm flexibility exercises, setting the scapula, scapula stability. Uh, we're working on mobility. We're working on flexibility. All right. Um, I like doing most of that in a dynamic, meaning where there's movement involved, right? For throwers, then you go into your throwing program. You start with the uh, arm and throwing position parallel to your partner, flicking that wrist and getting the ball out front. You moved into the uh, parallel to the partner, rotate your body, hand straight back, turn, paintbrush down the wall. You go into the direction drill. Then you go into the balance matching drill. Then you go through your throwing program. Okay. I have no problem with um, long toss. I think it's a valuable tool. Everybody long tosses differently as far as different distances, depending on their arm strength and how efficiently they use their body. Um, recently, uh, one major long toss advocate actually put a post up and said, uh, we have to remember we're not necessarily supposed to throw the ball on a line. You're supposed to throw the ball with your good throwing mechanics. And even if there's an arc on it, it's fine. Well, there's a couple of things that, that that statement reveals. One, when a lot of long toss gurus first started, uh, nobody mentioned that. It was all about max effort, throw the ball as far as you could. Uh, so now all, we start to see adaptations, right? One, probably because too many guys were getting hurt and you don't want your name attached to too many people that are getting hurt. Uh, then either you're going to lose your business or, or whatever. Um, so long toss is an individual thing. It's a tool. It should be part of everybody's throwing program. So let's say you work out to 120 feet, 150 feet. Now we're all, taking into consideration age here. But you should always throw the ball at your proper mechanic and always be getting out front. You do that, you never have a problem. Do I think it should be done at max effort? Well, 
a couple throws at max effort is not going to kill you. But this is all about repeating what we're doing and trying not to try hard, to try less. And then you start moving the guy in into his throwing program and he gets back. A pitcher then could proceed into some flat ground work where he's working on his delivery from the stretch or from the windup and throwing to his partner who's now in the down catcher position. We don't have to do this at 100%. 70 80% is fine. And then after that, you're ready for your day. You know, whether it's uh, PFB for the pitchers or infield for the infield practice, ground balls, fly balls for the position players, batting practice, you're ready to go. But I think once you start to use this as part of your program, and there's many different exercises, there's many different things that you can do. But just remember, you have your dynamic warm-up, so your whole body. You throw your ball with the whole body, so we got to warm up the whole body, right? That's kind of a basic. We can add two things in. On your throwing days, use some, uh, use some tubing as your, as your warm-up. Internal external rotation, some of the other standard tubing exercises that you can do. Uh, use that as your warm-up, all right? So the tubing you use should be easy to do that with. So don't get a light tubing and then all of a sudden stretch it so out, far out that you can't even move. This is all about warm-up, about getting the blood flowing. It's not about an exercise to get stronger. Um, you do all your tubing exercises. You focus on making store, sure that your, your shoulder blade's stable so that it can rotate and function around your shoulder blade. Um, then you go into your program, your throwing program like we discussed. And on that day, if you're going to throw a bullpen, um, you throw your bullpen. And I like to use the wrist weights or the light dumbbells. For me, wrist weights are more beneficial because we don't want the constant uh, you know, contractions of the forearm holding on to weights and stuff like that. But we're only using two pounds or one pound dumbbells for this as a cool down. Can you even use you know two cans of uh, soup? Yeah. And you uh, some cool down exercises. I think part of what happens in a lot of programs, um, especially at the younger level, you know, there's time restraints, and they're dealing with a group, and they have to get as much things in as possible. And we don't have a dynamic warm up. We don't have a tubing warm up, right? We don't go through a specific throwing program. We don't do our bullpens in a certain way. Um, they're max effort instead of being a controlled effort. And then after that, we don't cool down properly. If we do all of those and we stay within ourselves, we're probably going to stay healthy. If we don't warm up properly, if we don't cool down properly, if we start doing things at max effort, if we think velocity is the, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, we're then going to have some difficulties. And with, for those guys, I hope that uh, your talent level brings you to a point where you can make a couple of dollars and then, you know, be happy with that. But as far as long-term success in playing this game, the game has to be played with rhythm and timing. The parts have to be in the right place and it, there's got to be a flow. There's got to be um, energy built up, force built up along the kinetic chain. And then we try to efficiently get as much of that force to the release point, to the hand and the ball as possible. I think it's a lot of great information for our audience today. And I know as in all your shows, I always have a pencil and a legal pad and I take tons of notes. So if nothing else, Jim, you've influenced me and, uh, and our practices. So 
I would say an audience of one I'll deal with. But I think uh, we've got a lot of good responses from coaches, players uh, at all levels from what information you're providing in our, you know, our first few podcasts together. So uh, great information today. What do you want to leave the audience with today? How do you want to, what do you want to walk away with? And let's, let's remind them how they can find you and support you as well. Yes. Um, Well, the easiest way to look at some of my information and things in my background and all you can Go to my website, www.rooney, R-O-O-N-E-Y, baseball.com. <laughs> also, you can email me at coachjim at rooneybaseball.com. And for this week, Dave, I'd like to uh, propose that um, the first five people that would like to contact me through email will set up where I'll do a uh, – complimentary video analysis for them and conversation with them to discuss how the things that we discussed during the show are applicable to their son or daughter, whoever is their player or even themselves um, through the video analysis. And then they'll have an introduction to where to go, go where to get going to accomplish their long-term goals. I think that's a great offer. And uh, my son Tanner's, <laughs> he's going to probably sneak in there to be one of theirs. So don't count him as one of the, the first five, give it to some other people, but cause he listens to your podcast, but certainly if you want to chat with him, go right ahead. He always loves your stuff, but um, camp on again tomorrow. Yes. We'll be doing camp uh, for the rest of the week. Um, so I do the camp. Uh, I kidded with my wife this morning. I said, I've, I've, I'm working Italian, Italian hours uh, this week which was my experience when I lived in Italy for two years. Um, eight to 12 is the camp as far as the hours that I'm responsible for. And then I come home and then I start my first lessons up at three o'clock and we go from three to eight every day. So nice. I've got the Italian schedule. Nice. That sounds like my day. I guess I've been living the dream my whole life. Yes, here. Sir. So, yes sir. Well, uh, awesome show again today. I always love, love your shows and, as I said, I like getting smarter uh, when I do these things, and you certainly make me smarter every week, so I appreciate that. Uh, to our audience, thanks for the support. We went over that magic mark of 20000 uh, We've got a lot of good interest in what our product is producing out there for baseball minds. We're hitting life as well, so it's not like we're one track with just baseball, and we are applicable to other sports also. So thank you to you guys. Make sure you keep rate and review after you download us. Uh, that helps us with the analytics of the podcast world. It's certainly paying off now. And a loyal 72 countries keep listening, and we appreciate that with obviously the good old US of A leading the way with our listenership. So uh, this is Toe the Rubber with Jim Rooney. Jim, thanks so much again. Say you did a great job, man. Thank you, Dave. Have a great week. Again, we'll see you guys next week with Toe the Rubber, episode 225 in the books. <laughs>